Good morning, church. Turn with me to Mark chapter 4. This morning we're going to read and study a well-known passage, but I'm confident that our good God who illuminates His Word for us will bring something to our hearts, to our minds, and ultimately to our hands and feet this week in a fresh way. So Mark chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, and he began to teach again by the sea, and such a very large crowd gathered to him that he got into a boat in the sea and sat down, and the whole crowd was by the sea on the land. And he was teaching them many things in parables, and was saying to them in his teaching, listen to this, behold, the sower went out to sow. And it happened that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. And other seed fell on rocky ground, where it did not have much soil. And immediately it sprang up, because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun rose, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. Another seed fell among the thorns. The thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. And other seeds fell to the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they were yielding a crop and produced thirty, sixty, and a hundredfold. And he was saying, he who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, be with us this morning. The soil on which we tread is a soil that has fallen under the curse, the curse of our father Adam and a curse that we perpetuate into this day because of our sin. It's a curse that leads to death. It's a curse that leads to disease. It's a curse that leads to a rejection of your word. Lord, this morning I pray that your word through your spirit will quicken hearts in this room and it will ignite those who know you who need refreshing, who need that drenching rain from which you produce good things. We thank you that your word through your spirit accomplishes this. So be with us this morning. In the name of your son, we pray. Amen. Why do we use stories? Why do we use analogies? Why do we use allegory and symbolism and even myth to communicate things? It's because it's helpful. It's, it's, it's easier for us to grasp. These, these kind of stories, these allegories or these myths or, or, or symbols, they have a way of getting under our skin in a way that straight teaching may not. They have a way of capturing our attention, drawing us in as an audience. And in, in so doing, there's almost a backdoor sliding in of truths that are so important. Now, Christ wasn't trying to be sneaky by using parables. He was simply utilizing a device, utilizing a technique that we use all of the time because it works, because we're people. We were created in a certain way. We were created in a way that we love imagery. We were created in a way that fiction can be used to reveal fact. We were created in a way that we tell stories. 
you may have had this experience where you, you can't get your point across to someone, so you say, well, it's kind of like this. And then you give a, an analogy, and then, oh, now I get it. But you also may have the, uh, a, a different experience where by giving an analogy, now that person is even more confused. Now I'm trying to figure out what you were saying, plus why would you bring birds and bees into it? I don't understand what they have to do with each other. I mean, this is a potential problem that comes with the use of analogy, with the use of symbolism, with the use of allegory. But Jesus taught in parables. We know this. And Mark is not necessarily the place you go when you go to do a study on Jesus' parables. You, you don't have the greatest quantity of them, and you don't have the greatest explanation of them, but still, through the inspiration of the Spirit, Mark, in his gospel, gives us a number of Jesus' parables. And over the next few weeks, we'll be looking at a couple. But this parable is perhaps the longest one that we see in the gospel of Mark and is one of the longest ones that we see in all of the gospels. It is sometimes called the parable of the sower, sometimes called the parable of the soils. And really what this parable does is communicate an essential thing about the nature of the gospel. But in doing so, it also communicates something about the nature of parables. And it illustrates to us something, and this text in particular shows us something about why parables are used to both enlighten and for judgment. So again, the idea of a parable is simply something set alongside or set next to something else so it communicates, and so it gives somebody an opportunity to understand things in a different way or in a new light. And so, consequently, Jesus uses agricultural analogies almost exclusively. He talks about things that people, that the people of the land would have understood, how do seeds work, how do crops work, how, do, how does the land work, how do sheep work. And they knew those things. They were things that were familiar to them. And consequently, here we are 2,000 years later, and we probably know certain things about agriculture because of Jesus' parables that we wouldn't otherwise know in our modern society and culture. These aren't necessarily things we learn in school, and not all of us live on farms. We not all garden, and we certainly don't all do well at gardening, but we know something about gardening because of Jesus. Through it again, look at verse 3. Listen to this, it says, Behold, the sower went out to sow. And it happened that as he was sowing, some seed fell beside the road, and the birds came and ate it up. So this is the first soil. It isn't even soil at all. It's on the road, and the birds eat it. Verse 5, And other seed fell on the rocky ground where it did not have much soil, and immediately it sprang up because it had no depth of soil. And after the sun rose, it was scorched, and because it had no root, it withered away. So the second soil is rocky. And the seed was unable to penetrate this rocky substrate. And even though it was growing fine, it didn't have much root. So when the sun came, there was no opportunity for it to get moisture and water and, and, and nutrients. And so it simply fried. The third one we see in verse 7, And other seed fell among the thorns, and the thorns came up and choked it, and it yielded no crop. So here we have a plant that seems to be doing just fine. The problem is it was being outcompeted for all of those essential things that a plant needs. And so it, like the soil sown in the rocky or the seed sown in the rocky soil, and it so like the seed that was sown alongside the road, 
even though it grew up, it still came to nothing. But then we have the fourth soil. And other seeds, it says in verse 8, fell into the good soil, and as they grew up and increased, they were yielding a crop and produced 30, 60, and 100-fold. I mean, that's quite the yield, 100-fold. But there's a precedent of it. Interestingly, uh, back in Genesis chapter 26, um, when, when God is talking about the blessing that is given to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, Isaac is kind of the, 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 the least publicized patriarch. But this is what, got, what happens to Isaac when he sows in the land, the land that was given to them, the land of Canaan, and reaped in that same year 100-fold. And Yahweh blessed him, and the man became great and continued to grow greater until he became very great. The idea of a crop yielding a hundredfold is a picture of blessing. So in as much as you have the, 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 really the desolation of the pictures of the first three soils, the fourth soil isn't simply, well, this one made it. This one is eking out a living. This one is doing great things. We're seeing an amazing harvest of fruit. And we'll return to this, of course, because as you're probably aware, Jesus explains this, not simply from an agricultural perspective like I just did, but in a greater detail as to what this means as a parable, what this means as a symbolic story. But then we get to what we would call the sandwich, the meat of the sandwich, as it were. So last week, if you recall, when we were talking about this, uh, Jesus being confronted by the Pharisees and the scribes and them accusing him of casting out demons by demons, that story came in the middle of two other stories, one that had to do with his family thinking he had gone, in some translations, berserk, and them being basically embarrassed of him. And so then we have the story in the middle of how the scribes were accusing him of being demonic. And the intention of that kind of the, the meat or the filling of that sandwich is to illustrate how those who were kind of just embarrassed, those who were kind of being standoffish and, and not really liking what Jesus were doing, were in the exact same situation. If you criticize Jesus a lot, you're in trouble. If you criticize Jesus a little, you're in trouble because at the end of the day, you're criticizing Jesus. And so the meat of that sandwich was meant to illustrate how the whole thing was an issue. We have a similar kind of text here in Mark chapter 4. And then actually this is something we see all over the place in the Gospel of Mark. So we have the, the parable itself, and then we'll see later in verses excuse me, 14 through 20, we'll see the explanation of the parable. But we're going to see the purpose of the parable in verses 10, 11, and 12. Why does Jesus speak in parables? So before we get to the explanation of the parable, I want to address this because I think this, ought, this, this, this is one of the ways, I believe, where we can have a text that, as I said earlier, we've read a hundred times, we know backwards and frontwards, and, and start to get a little bit more of an understanding of how and why Jesus was using it at that point in time, why it was communicated by Mark under the inspiration of the Spirit for the text, and how we might be able to understand it and apply it today. So look at verses 10 through 12. Verse 10, And when he was alone, his followers, along with the twelve, began asking him about the parables. And he was saying to them, To you it has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God, but to those who are outside, everything comes in parables, so that while seeing, they may see and not understand, excuse me, they may see and not perceive and while hearing, they may hear and not understand, lest they return 
and be forgiven. And he said to them, do you not understand this parable? How will you understand all the parables? This is a difficult text, but this is a text that is repeated in all of the Gospels, and it is a, it is a text that comes from the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 6. I think it was probably only last year that as we're going through the Gospel of John, the first half of the Gospel of John, we touched on this when John used it. But this is an important text because if something is repeated many times, you know that it's something that we ought to be aware of and that we ought to understand. But it seems like it is a little bit uncomfortable, almost like this morning's catechism question. It's one of those things that we only address when we have to address it, and we don't want to necessarily talk about it. Because look at what Jesus is saying. He's saying to his apostles in verse 11, those who are close to him, he's saying, you guys get it. To you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. You have been, you've been, it's been revealed to you. It's been unveiled to you. It's been shown to you. But to those who are outside, everything comes in parables. Everything is obscured. Everything has a layer in front of it. Everything has a veil between the clear meaning and what they perceive. And then Jesus quotes Isaiah so that while seeing they may not perceive, while hearing they may not understand. What does it mean to see and not perceive and hear but not understand? I think we've all been there. We've said something to somebody, and they're nodding their head, and then you say, do you see what I'm saying? And say, no. We've all had that, and we've all probably been on that side of it. What's going on there? I heard you. I just don't get it. Maybe it's a terminology issue. Maybe it's a frame of reference issue. Maybe it's simply a, a, a level of comprehension where we're just not there yet. If someone starts to talk about chemistry or someone starts to talk about math that uses symbols that you don't find on a simple calculator, that's when I start to glaze over and just say, treat me like I'm a kindergartner and explain trigonometry to me that way. Thankfully, there's smart people that the Lord has blessed that understand those things. And I don't necessarily need to. So you might hear something, but you don't get it. You might see something, but you might not perceive it. And what's happening here? Well, to go back to Isaiah chapter 6, we don't have to do a full study on that. This is actually when God calls, when, when, when God summons Isaiah up into his throne room, as he does with the major prophets, the prophets, and he, he gives him this great commission. He says, I'm going to send you to Israel, and you are going to proclaim that they are to repent and to turn to me, but they're not going to listen to you. How would you like that for a job description? Here's your job. It's to get people to do something. They're not going to do it. It's not super encouraging. You know, here's your job. I want you to lift things up. You can't lift them up. They're too heavy. You know, here's your job. I want you to move things from point A to point B, but I'm not going to tell you how to get to point B. And even if you found out, there's a cliff that you can't climb. Isaiah had a difficult job. Jesus had a difficult job. We have a difficult job. Because at, in, in this, in the call of Isaiah, what's being restated here in Mark chapter 4 is the nature of of what we are called to do when we share the gospel. We share the gospel without reservation, regardless of who it is. If that person looks like the kind of person that won't accept the gospel, we do it anyway. Because honestly, 
who's the kind of person that will accept the gospel? The clean, articulate, churchy kind of person? I think we all know clean, churchy, articulate people who don't believe in Jesus. And thank God that they're clean and articulate and churchy. At the same time, does that get you one step closer to heaven? And the answer is no. And we've all heard stories, and maybe it's even our story or someone close to us, their story, where they are the complete opposite of those things. Yet when they heard about Jesus, they came, and they came in a way that only God received the glory. This was Isaiah's call. It was to go to an unrepentant, hardened people. And the question is not to say, make them good before they hear. The, the, the job, the job uh, expectation for Isaiah was not to convert a whole bunch to make sure at the end of the year that the denomination gets a receipt for how many baptisms and conversions and Bibles were given out. The call to Isaiah and the call that we see Jesus picking up as the chief prophet was simply to proclaim the gospel. It wasn't necessarily about how many people were baptized. It wasn't necessarily about how many people came forward and knelt down and said a prayer. It wasn't necessarily about how many people stood up at VBS or came and fit under the tent. The the call was simply to proclaim the gospel and do it in a way that is faithful to the message that we receive from Scripture and is faithful to the heart of Christ, which is everyone, everywhere, all the time. It's not our job to reach into someone's heart and do surgery and take out that heart of stone and put in the heart of flesh. That is only the job of the Spirit. Our job is simply to share the word. Faith comes by hearing, and hearing comes by the word. And how will they know if a preacher is not sent? And that has nothing to do with a clerical collar. It has nothing to do with a degree from a Bible college or a seminary. It has everything to do with being able to articulate the simple truth that God loved the world, so he sent his son. So this is what we do. This is what Isaiah was called to do. Isaiah had it hard. Christ had it hard. Isaiah was persecuted. Christ was persecuted. The apostles that picked up this same mantle and this same idea, they were themselves persecuted. But still, it's a difficult passage, isn't it, church? Why doesn't Jesus just say it? Why doesn't Jesus just say, this is how it is? But the fact of the matter is he does. He does all the time. And parables make it easier. I mean, we are testament to it today. We're, as we continue to go through this chapter and, 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 and you know, exegete this parable, for us, we'll say, this does make it easier. This is a wonderful word picture that we can hold in our minds, that we can visualize as we walk out on our property today and think about, this is how the gospel works. So it's not that Jesus is making it more difficult by speaking in parables. It's that what Jesus is doing by speaking in parables is pointing out the hardness of those who reject him. I've given it to you easy. This is how the gospel works. Let me explain it. And like I said earlier, sometimes we explain something that we think ought to be easy to understand, and then we give an example or we give a a object lesson or we give a case study, and that is actually even more confusing. And what that illustrates, if we're being good communicators, is that that person needs a remedial education about what we're talking about. And that's what's happening here. Jesus explains it clearly. 
He brings a story alongside of it to illustrate it. And so at that point, if they don't get it, if they see it but they don't perceive, if they hear it but they don't understand, that simply demonstrates their hardness of heart. If they don't get it, they don't get it. And of course, it bears mentioning that every one of us didn't get it at one point in time, but for the grace of God. And so we don't treat people as stupid if they don't get things. We don't treat people as, as reprobate or, or uh, you know, destined for hell if they don't get this. But at the same time, we understand that if we do it really, really well, we explain it clearly. I mean, we use the chart. We use the, we use the, you know, we went to the evangelism seminar and we knock it out of the park as far as just clearly demonstrating those five points, seven points, Romans Road, 316, whatever it may be, and they still don't get it, that it wasn't because we transposed two of the words. It's because God's still at work or this person may be hardened to the things of God. And so what parables become, like so much of Jesus' ministry, is a dividing line. They illustrate, they demonstrate, they communicate to both the hearer and both to the one sowing the soil, excuse me, sowing the seed, that this is the kind of thing where God's people get it and those who are not in God's family don't get it. It is one more way that Jesus, as the light, shines brightly upon all people who hear his word and because of that, those who receive that great light but don't, don't receive it, so those who see it but don't perceive it, those who hear it but don't understand it, those who light shines on them but they are not changed are judged by that. And this is why we share the gospel, church. I, I just want to go back to it one more time. This is why we bring the gospel. We bring the gospel to our family. We bring the gospel to our neighbors. We bring the gospel to the community that we're in. We bring the gospel to the far ends of the earth because the gospel is the means by which people are saved. It is our job to bring the gospel. It is the Spirit's God. It is the Spirit's job to bring them to God. And so, while seeing they may not perceive, and while hearing they may hear and not understand, lest they return and be forgiven. And that's certainly a negative statement. In Isaiah, the people of Isaiah's day were so hardened that God was saying, I'm giving them over to their hardness. But I think in that also is the reminder, and as we talked about last week, that there is forgiveness that comes. So actually, and I don't want to stretch the text too far, that if when you do perceive, when you do understand, you do return and you are forgiven. And that's the promise of the gospel, but that's accomplished by the Spirit. So Jesus says this to his apostles. He says this to those who are closest to him. And then he explains the parable to them, which is interesting because he says in verse 11, to you has been given the mystery of the kingdom of God. So they get it. They get the big picture. But Christ, in his condescension, as we sang this morning, in his coming down, in his coming alongside people, the ultimate parable, God made flesh, illustrating something unknowable by, by becoming tangible, he comes alongside of them and he gives them a greater understanding. He gives them more than they deserve. And what a, a wonderful picture of God. We get more than we deserve. We don't have the Ten Commandments, and we have the cross, and it says figure it out from there. We have so much more than that. So Jesus comes alongside his uh, apostles, and he explains it to them, beginning in verse 14. 
The sower sows the word. The sower sows the word. So this is fascinating if you think about it. And we've touched on this a number of times already in the Gospel of Mark. What is the word? Back then, 2,000 years ago, when the, the church received the Gospel of Mark, or if you want to go even further back, when Christ is talking to his apostles and he's explaining this, this parable, what was the word? The word is the Old Testament. The word is the law. The word is the prophets. The word is the writings. That's what the word was. And so it's interesting what he's saying, and this is, this is in the news today. This is something that we need to be aware of. What was in that? What was in Genesis? What was in Isaiah? What was in the Proverbs? What was in the Psalms? What was in 2 Chronicles? What was in the genealogies of Leviticus? That is profitable for salvation. It doesn't explain the cross, but it foreshadows the cross. It doesn't, it doesn't it illuminate uh, the, the substitutionary atonement, but it anticipates the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And it was sufficient for salvation. Of course, now, when we sow the word, we have the fullness of it. So this is the seed. The seed is the word. The seed is the gospel, the gospel of the kingdom. And again, and we'll talk about this more next week, the kingdom is the gospel of salvation, but it's also the gospel of what God is doing in the world. And then we get into these four soils. The first one isn't really even soil. Verse 15, And these are the ones who are beside the road where the word is sown. When they hear, immediately Satan comes and takes away the word which has been sown in them. So here we have, in as many weeks, the second mention of Satan, the personal entity that is opposed to Christ and his church. And here, he is shown as the one who basically, when people see the tract and they see that it has Bible stuff on it, they tear it up and throw it in the trash can, that this is the direct work of not necessarily them being possessed. If somebody tells you, you know, in a couple of months when you say Merry Christmas and they say Happy Holidays back, it doesn't mean that there's active demonic work at the checkout person at the grocery store. That's not what's being said. But what underlies the opposition, what is behind the, the callousness towards the things of God, goes all the way back to what we talked about in Genesis chapter 3, where the seed of the serpent is continuing to work its slithering way through the lives of people, keeping them at enmity with God. And so there is, again, this is something that we don't like to talk about in our nice, clean, sterile 21st century lifestyle, but there is satanic, demonic opposition that exists at a base level between the Word of God and those who receive it. We see this in the world. We see this in our culture. We see this in competing religions. And we see this in perversions of Christianity. What is behind this, as we mentioned last week, is not a place of neutrality, not people who are just trying to figure it out, not people who are just imagining what if there was this or what if there was that, but it is antagonistic and it is opposed to the things of God. So that's our first soil. It's not even really a soil. It's the road, and it represents those who Satan comes and takes away the seed. Now verse 16, in a similar way, these are the ones being sown on the rocky places. 
Those who, when hearing the word, immediately receive it with joy, and they have no root in themselves but are only temporary. Then, when affliction or persecution arises because of the world, excuse me, because of the word, immediately they fall away. The rocky soil represents persecution and how for those who receive the word, they then see what the cost is. They then see that it does put them at odds with their family, at odds with their values, at odds with the gods of this world. They then see that they are being lumped in with so-called extremists, that they are being lumped in with so-called Christian nationalists. They're being lumped in with those who are being called bigoted and misogynistic and transphobic and all of these things. And they say, I can't be a part of that, even though I have problems with it. It comes with those who said to be identified with this people, to be identified is a hard thing, and I can't do that. The cost is too great. The cost is too high. And so I'm going to slide into the background. And this is a difficult thing because is this necessarily, is this necessarily a litmus test for if someone's a believer or not? If someone is standing there and they said, hey, who's with Jesus? And you take a step back. Does that mean that you're just in the rocky soil? Well, here's the problem, church. Every one of us does this all the time. Every time that we choose sin over righteousness, we are essentially sliding backwards, especially if it's in the face of others. Not unlike what Peter the foremost apostle did when he was asked three times, are you with this man? Do you know this man? You're one of them, aren't you? No, no, no. Peter was, was, was the rock. His confession was the rock on which the church was going to be built, yet he still struggled. So I want to be careful. And I, but at the same time, I, I want us to be cautious. This is not the litmus test. For if, if someone has, has you know, been quiet around the water cooler when people were being antagonistic towards the church, that that automatically means that the sun has come and withered you. But it's something to be aware of. It's something where if that is someone's response, that the persecutions of this world are too great, that that joy that they received when they went to the men's conference, that joy that they had when, they, when, when someone shared the gospel with them and it sounded like a really good deal, but when their life is a life that's withered and a life is a life that doesn't want to stand firm, it's indicative that there was no root to begin with. Again, only God knows the heart. But we need to be cautious. We say, well, we got 47 hands raised at VBS. There was 100 people that came forward at the, at the big tent thing that we had down the road. We need to be aware that that is not necessarily a perfect one-to-one correlation of what's happening in people's hearts. So the first soil is not really a soil, it's the road. The second soil is the rocky soil. And we see the third soil in verse 18. And others are those being sown among the thorns. These are the ones who have heard the word. But the worries of the world and the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for anything else enter in and choke the word, and it becomes unfruitful. We can talk about this quite a bit. The things that choke out faith. 
Now, I want us to be clear, and I want us to look at what Jesus is saying. What chokes out those who have heard the word that are in this soil? Notice it's not the world, it's the worries of the world. As Jesus says, I'm not going to take you out of the world. If you are living in the world, if you are operating in the marketplace, if you are living in a neighborhood surrounded by people who aren't believers, that's not necessarily the problem. It's the worries of this world. It's buying into the news cycle and having your, your hope in the news cycle or having your fear in the news cycle as opposed to having your hope in Christ and your fear of God. That is what the worries of the world are. We can't be pulled out of the world until the Lord calls us home or until he returns. But while we're in the world, the call, the, the call is to not be consumed by the worries of the world. And what is the worries of the world? The worries of the world is essentially saying what the world gives me is scarier than the fear of the Lord. So it's essentially, it's, it, it, it's transposing those two things and saying the world has more to be afraid of than what God has to be afraid of. The world has more to be afraid of than what God has to offer. And then secondly, the deceitfulness of riches. And this kind of comports with what Jesus talks about, about the, the love of money being the root of all evil. It's not necessarily having stuff. And so we can't look at somebody who is wealthy, and again, in the grand scheme of things, every one of us is wealthy, both in our country and also across the world. It's not necessarily wealth. It's not necessarily riches. It's putting too much credence in riches. And being, being okay with the call of Christ as long as it's comfortable, as long as it requires, but once it starts to require sacrifice, once it starts to require giving of oneself, of one's time, of one's resources, once it requires giving of one's family, that's when it starts to become difficult. That's the deceitfulness of riches, that there's actually comfort in riches, not comfort in the God who supplies us with all we need and abundantly more. So these three soils, the road, the rocks, the thorns, they illustrate a group of those who receive the gospel. And something happens, but nothing truly grows fruit. And so that's where we see the perfect seed, the perfect landing spot for the seed. And that's verse 20. And those are the ones which were sown on the good soil, and they who hear the word and accept it and are bearing fruit, 30, 60, and 100-fold. So church, I want, this to be clear, I want this to be abundantly clear that what we have here is not people who don't hear the gospel, the road, and then the rocks, and the thorns, and the good soil. Some people that receive the gospel and do good things with it, and other people that receive the gospel and then lose their salvation, or people who hear the gospel and they really just kind of struggle with their faith. The dividing line is not between soil three and soil, excuse me, soil one and soil two. The dividing line is between soil three and soil four. Because this bears itself out in so many places of scripture, and we'll see it even here as we conclude our, our, our text in a few verses. But the promise that Jesus gives, not a good promise, but the promise so that we can know, so that we can anticipate, so that we can be aware, is that there will always be those among you that are not of you, that there will be chaff mixed within the wheat, that there is going to be a net of all sorts of fish, but on that day there will be a division. 
And that dividing line is first and foremost based upon what the Word of God has done in the heart through the Spirit of the individual. That's the dividing line. So what this means, and we probably have examples of this in our, in our own lives, you may have examples of this that are incredibly painful to think about, the person that for years or for decades seems to be walking with Christ. They held this position. They were able to espouse these doctrines. They were able to do these things, and then they backed out. Did they lose their salvation? Did, did the seal of the Spirit somehow crack and, 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 and drop off of them and, and turn them over? That might be an example of what we have in the thorny soil, where things just got too good and too easy and revealed that there was never a deep root to begin with. We might know somebody who, who, who just was on fire for Jesus, and we, taught, we, we brought them up in front of the church. We used them as the example. They were the ones that we pointed to because they were this, and now they are that. But then after a few more beats, they were back to where they were before. Perhaps they were the one where it was sown on rocky soil, and as soon as the, 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 the uh, euphoria of, of this newness and this, the euphoria of the attention and the excitement wears off, then it's back to where you were. Now, what I want to be clear, church, is as we talked about last week, when we talked about forgiveness and we talked about the nature of, of Christ and how he is greater than all of our sins, that doesn't mean that these people are lost. It doesn't mean that the one who lived for, for, for decades and then, and then turned their back on their faith or the one that had the dramatic conversion story and then kind of backslid, to use a, a word we don't use that much, it doesn't mean that they're beyond the hope of Christ. But we need to make sure that we have a division. The dividing line is not between those who grow and those who don't grow. The dividing line is between those who bear fruit, fruit by God's standards, and those who do not. Because ultimately, that's what's different between the fourth soil and the first, second, and third. It's not growing because the second soil and the third soil, the rocky soil and the thorny soil, that plant grows, that seed causes something to grow up. But what you don't see in the second soil and the third soil that you do in the fourth is fruit being produced and not meager fruit. Not wimpy, little, shriveled-up apples. But you see fruit 30, 60, and 100-fold. And of course, this isn't something that God necessarily calls us to figure out. When the elders get together, we don't, we don't have a fruit tally for everyone in the church and figure out where they are. This is something that God knows that God understands, and, and, and it's in his economy. and That's the nature of the kingdom. Is it, It's a completely different economy than we work off of. But what this illustrates also, not just there's two categories of soil, but it, it reinforces the nature of the gospel, the perfect seed that is sown. Sometimes, and, and this might be my, only my flannel graph mind that sees it this way, but we see like the road, and next to the road we see rocks, and then we see thorns, and then we see a good field, which, isn't, which wouldn't be uncommon as we're driving around here. There's the road, and then there's the, you know, the, kind of the, the, the asphalt as it kind of tapers in and it's kind of overgrown, and then, and then you have you know, the, the, the hedgerow where it's all the weeds and stuff in it, and then you have the well-tilled soil. I don't think that's the image we're supposed to get. I think it's all kind of mixed up. 
Because no farmer in their right mind, whether they're doing it by hand like they would have been in the first century or they're using GPS-enabled uh, uh, planting devices to sow their seed in a way that optimizes their yield, would throw seed on the path. So you have a, a, a better picture of this would you have a simple farmer's field, you know, something that you might have even seen 150, 200 years ago here in New England where they have a field, and they've done their job to get some of the bigger rocks out because everyone grows rocks in New England. They've gotten those rocks out. They've made a nice pretty fence that we're still enjoying today. And they might have done a little bit of weeding, a little bit of tilling, but at the end of the day, they've got to get that seed down. And so as they're walking a path they've walked countless times, they're pulling that seed out of that bag, and they're throwing it everywhere. And they're not stopping to pick up those individual seeds that happen to be on this well-trodden path. They're just throwing it and getting it out there. Because the call of the evangelist, and every one of us, although we might not be a capital E evangelist, where that's necessarily our, our calling, where we're going and preaching on street corners, or we're knocking door to door, the call of the Christian is to do the Great Commission, which is to go and make disciples. So in that sense, every one of us is evangel an evangelist. And we're not, we're, we're not intended to take our time taking soil samples, finding out this is the optimum place to tell somebody about Jesus and passing by person A, B, C, D, and then talking to person E. What we are called to do is what I believe, and I think what Scripture bears out, what we see in this parable, that the universal external call of the gospel. We tell everyone. And then, maybe this is a crass way of saying it, we let God sort it out. We tell everyone the gospel. One of the greatest um, critiques and one of the most erroneous but, but most common criticisms about the Reformed tradition, particularly about a Calvinistic faith, has to do with the fact that you think only certain people are going to hear the gospel. But that's false. You read one word of the Puritans, you read one word of the Reformers, and even though you can have the view of God's sovereignty, you can have the view that God predestined some to life and some to, to not receive the word, but the call that is given explicitly in Scripture and that every one of these men who is the, the, on the, the figureheads of this movement for the last 500 years and even those who came before it is that the call on the evangelist, the call on the Christian is to tell everyone about the gospel. The problem with, with, with thinking that, that we pick and choose who is saved is, is, is completely contrary to the idea of God's sovereignty. If God is sovereign then he knows that our call is to share the gospel with everyone. And he desires us to share the gospel with everyone. And it is his work, it is his sovereign hand, it is his redeeming spirit that will work in the lives of those he has called unto himself. This is simply one text that bears this out, that the external call is universal. The internal call is for those who God is drawing to himself. But that is not our job. That's the job of the Spirit. Our job, once more, like the sower in the parable, is to spread seed as far and as wide as it happens. Because every one of us has seen plants do amazing things in unlikely locations. We were in the Florida Keys last year. We were driving on one of these bridges that was miles and miles between a couple of these keys. And there's this famous tree that is on a bridge. I mean, it's a big tree. I mean, it's, if I tried to grow a tree like this in my yard, it wouldn't happen. Yet, it is growing on a bridge 
because the winds carry enough soil and there's enough rain and all these things happen. So this nice tree is growing in the middle of this bridge with miles of road on either side of it and nary a foot of soil, yet this tree has grown. This would be the last place you would want to grow a tree and the highway department's probably not that happy about it, but they actually have shut down that bridge. But this illustrates, and if you farm, if you garden, you know that things that you try to plant in the place where you think this is where it's going to work, it's not going to work. But the old plants that you threw out last year in the woods, they're doing great. We, we don't have control over things that we can tangibly touch. Why do we think that we have control over the spiritual things? Jesus says the Spirit moves as it wishes. God has called us to share the gospel with everyone, with every creature. So even if that person, even if your neighbor has a creaturely aspect to him, share the gospel with him. Spread the seed indiscriminately because, and again, the Reformed tradition bears this out, that the external call, the universal call, is us preaching the gospel. That's what we need to worry about. God will take care of the internal call. That is something for him and his spirit to do. So we see a conclusion here. We have, we have the, 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 the parable presented. We have this, this difficult text here in the middle see, uh, that we, we talked about, about how parables are effectively a dividing line for God's people and those who, who are, have not converted. We have the explanation of the parable, but then Jesus tacks on two more. He says in verse 21, And he was saying to them, Is a lamp brought to be put under a basket or under a bed? It is not to be put on the lampstand? For nothing is hidden except to be revealed, nor has anything been secret, but that it would come to light. So inasmuch as the seed is spread everywhere, the light on a lampstand is to go everywhere. So this reinforces this idea that it's not the, the gospel, the, the, the seed, what is precious, what brings growth, what it brings expansion of the kingdom is not meant to be kept in this room among these people and in our individual homes when our families are the only ones in them. The light of the gospel is meant to be placed on high. And this is the idea of a city on a hill so that everyone will see. This is our call. Our theology, church, our confession, it behooves us to share the gospel. Nothing is hidden except to be revealed. And then Jesus says once more, if anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. And he was saying to them, beware what you listen to. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given to you. For whoever has, to him more shall be given. And whoever does not have, even what he has shall be taken away from him. And this is, again, the kingdom economy, where what Jesus gives, he gives in abundance, 30, 60, 100 fold. Whoever has, it's going to do amazing things. And not amazing things necessarily because, you know, what we're doing, but what God is doing in us. By your standard of measure, it will be measured to you, and more will be given to you. In Christ, our standard of measure is Christ. It's his righteousness. It's not our righteousness. It's an alien righteousness. And so whoever has, more will be given. And so, but just like what we saw earlier in the parable, those who were sown on the different soils, nothing, nothing came of them. So it's not like they did poorly and they 
get in by the skin of their teeth. It's if they don't bear fruit, then they are what is cast off, cast away, and ultimately destined, as we talked about earlier this morning in the catechism, for eternal torment in hell. Jesus makes no bones about. He doesn't mitigate his speech. He makes it very clear what the nature of the gospel is and its implications. I want to read real quickly from Calvin's commentary on Isaiah, which is, this is the the passage that we saw in verse 12. He says that Jesus declares that the people, bereft of reason and understanding, will perish, and there will be no means of obtaining relief. And yet at the same time, he affirms the labors of the prophet Isaiah. And then he says, this is a truly remarkable declaration, not only because Isaiah here foretold what was afterwards fulfilled under the reign of Christ, but also because it contains a most useful doctrine, which will be a perpetual use of the church of God. For all who shall labor faithfully in the ministry of the word will be laid under the necessity of meeting with the same result. We too have experienced it more than we could wish. It has been shared by all the servants of Christ, and therefore we ought to endure it with greater patience, though it is a grievous stumbling block to those who serve God with a pure conscience. And what is, it, what is it grievous to us? It's when we do this work and it doesn't have results. We think, I've been praying for this person for decades. I've been witnessing to this person year after year after year. Why isn't it happening? What am I not saying? Jesus claimed his gospel. Jesus appeared, resurrected. Isaiah, doing the things that he did. The other prophets, the apostles, the church in the last 2,000 years. It is grievous church to work and to share and to bleed and to cry for those we want to know want those we want to come to know Christ. But all we can do is continue to pray, continue to share, continue to love without any reservations, without any exclusivity, sharing that message, knowing that God is the one who will ultimately cause them to take root, cause them to grow, cause them to bear fruit. And when that happens, it will be something that is beyond our expectations. Because for whoever has, to him more shall be given. It's a wonderful promise. This is a promise that is for you. It's a promise that's for me. It's a promise for all who are in Christ. And so this morning as we transition into taking the supper, I want this to be kind of in our minds, in our hearts. Because the Last Supper, as you well know, there was, there was a, a cloud over it. Jesus had told his apostles that he was going to be delivered up. They might not have believed exactly that was going to happen like it was going to happen. But Christ himself was only a few hours from going to Gethsemane. Christ himself was only a few hours from being betrayed. Christ himself understood that this bread and this cup we're anticipating something that was much, much more significant than food and drink. And so, although it is a celebratory meal, it's also a meal that comes with a great cost. 
It's also a meal that is a dividing line, like we talked about this morning. Those who partake of it in the right spirit, those who partake of it because they have received the true blood and the true flesh of Christ, know that it is only by God's grace that we receive that. But in another parable, Jesus says that he sends his servants out into the highways and the hedges to draw people in to come to his table. And so we're called to do that as well. It might be a mansion or it might be a literal ditch, but we're called to go and bring people to this table. And so there is a bittersweet nature of it in understanding not only the fact that Christ had to suffer, but that we are endeavoring to bring more people in. And we might not necessarily see that today or tomorrow, but in eternity, as we sit around the table with Christ, the marriage supper of the Lamb, all will be vindicated, all will be made known, all will be understood for God's good and perfect plan. So consider these things. Consider our hearts as we receive the elements. So I'll invite uh, the musicians to come up and I'll pray. And then as they're playing, we'll receive the elements and take part in the Lord's Supper. Can you pray with me? Lord, your word is good. Lord, I pray that every one of us, whether it be in an app on our phone, whether it be in the... um, the bound Bible that we've had for decades, whether it be in the verses that we have memorized since childhood, that we will understand that our bag of seed is precious, is valuable. It is, it is of, of, of more to be desired than gold and silver. It is more costly than pearls. That the great treasure of your word is something that is not only for our edification, but also for is us to share willingly and freely. And that's for us to give out to everyone that your call to us as your people is to without hesitation or reservation or discrimination, give your word to all those we come across. Lord, we know that you have a perfect plan, that in your design, in your will, before the foundation of the world, you have chosen your elect. But you don't reveal that to us. You've given us a call to share your gospel. And what a wonderful call that is. Even now, as we take the supper, Lord, I pray you will convict us of where we have been unfaithful, but you will also restore us, renew us, and draw us closer to yourself so that we go out of this place nourished by your word, nourished by your supper, and prepared to do the work that you have set beforehand for us. We ask this in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.